Now, I'm guessing that if you've hit play on this podcast, you will have already clocked that the answer to the question posed in this week's title is no. No, the shipping industry is not changing quickly enough. Whether you're talking about the digital transition, the decarbonisation trajectory, uh, training, people, safety, supply chain resilience, the answer is no. No, no, no. On pretty much every metric you care to think about right now, the industry does not have sufficient pace behind the transitions required of it. But you knew that, and hopefully you're still listening. So I want to explore the reasons why in a little bit more depth this week, because as we discussed in the last edition of the podcast, and if you haven't listened to that one, I would urge you to go back and listen to that one first. But as we discussed there, moving from ambition to action is easier said than done. Like last week's edition, these conversations all stem from around the recent Global Maritime Forum held in Athens, but they're part of a wider series of conversations that I've been having for a while now with industry leaders about tipping points in the industry and how the sector is evolving. I'm going to be delving into a few different areas this week, including finance, safety and skills, but I want to start with the industry's digital transition because I had an illuminating conversation with Saskia Moreau, now, she heads the twin transitions of digital and decarbonisation for the port of Rotterdam from a customer perspective. And we know shipping is behind where it wants to be on both tracks, but why? Well, Saskia has a very interesting perspective. Yeah, so why is it behind on it? I, I don't think it's a core skill set of the shipping industry to invest in, in digital and data. Um, and um, as a result... Uh, we see people sort of focusing on their own business models and not so much on this new stuff. Um, I also think that more than I think any other industry, we've had a huge task of data standardization. Um, so uh, just if you take the, the water levels and how you measured them across the world, um, it was done differently in many places. Um, mm. And Rotterdam only moved to the global standard last year. Uh, and uh, that, that really drives a lot of the efficiency uh, sort of between ports on a global scale. Um, the reason it is really important and people are starting to embrace it more, I think, is also that we can now um, unite around the goal of emissions and emission reduction. Whereas before, when it's just efficiency, it often means that you get a bit more of that uh, efficiency value than I do, and it becomes a negotiation, and it becomes a, I have my needs and you have yours. And mm. So to put green and sustainability at the heart of it, and, and then also have the efficiency gains, because they're often equal, um, is, a, is a much better space to be in, I think. It's, it's obviously not a new conversation in the industry and you know the lack of data standardization has been a concern that's routinely brought up and I think you know, it was brought up here within the Global Maritime Forum three, four years ago and not a lot happened with it because at that stage I think there was still a mindset within certainly the ship owning community that this is my data, why should I give it up? The fact that you're coming at this now with a, a decarbonisation angle, that gives more of a, a rationale, more of an impetus and you know, perhaps more of an idea that actually there is some upside here. There is opportunity as well as the risk of you know, being more transparent, which, let's be honest, is probably not a natural inclination for the shipping industry. Yeah. 
And I think it's good to realize that whilst we had that data standardization journey on a global uh, level, in parallel, all the individual companies went through their own digital transformation, mm. uh, which was very much a company only thing. Um, and most people now have got some sort of skill set in this and they've seen some successes and they've optimized within their company boundaries. I think the next step now is to do that across value chains. Mm. Um, that obviously is much harder um, and we see also needs more orchestration. So often um, we bring people together as a port um, that might have uh, and might even be competitors, uh, but we bring them together in a room and then learn together um, and make progress because ultimately the data sharing oper um, influences um, operational processes and data doesn't mean anything unless an operator or a captain or someone does something different as a result of a data insight. And this is one of the key things I think has been a bit of a blocker frankly because while you can talk to the industry and they will rationalize this and think that sounds like a reasonable idea once they get down at the nitty gritty of this, A, it is complex, it is not a quick fix, it is not something that an engineer can attach to their ships and hope for a result. It is a different process, it's a mindset shift, it's uh, a different way of doing things over a long period of time. So these are difficult things and it requires industry to change. That is not something that the industry is particularly comfortable with. Do you think that that message is now getting through to some people or do you think there is a bit of a fundamental block within the industry that it's still just not very data savvy? Yeah, um, so I think it's getting through to leadership in general, but if I compare it with other B2B industries that I've been operating in, it's much slower than what I've seen in other, um, in other industries. So I find I'm having much more um, uh, sort of um, elaborate conversations with leadership and maritime now than I did before. Um, but it, I think it's also important to realize that often it's a head office subject mm. in the same way that energy transition is a head office subject. Um, and that means that for local operations, um, there's often a, a gap between whatever the head office thinks and wants and what local operations need to go and do. Um, and that gap, I think we're not bridging yet. We're trying, um, there are smaller use cases where it's starting to work. I think companies like um, the Digital Containing, Container Shipping Association, DCSA, is doing a great job to bridge some of that, but it's, um, yeah, that's a, it's a journey. But there's also a skill set issue. I mean, you mentioned on a panel um, that quite a few people you spoke to weren't familiar with acronyms like APIs. Um, I noticed from the audience perspective, there was a lot of elder gentlemen perhaps shifting a little bit uncomfortably in their seats, suggesting that they didn't know what an API was. I mean, are you concerned that there just isn't the technical abilities within the industry as it stands today? I, I think that's that's a very fair uh, that's a very fair observation, and um, my hope is that when you work with people at the forefront, um, then it starts to come. But I'm also worried when I hear that in in certain uh, countries, and this was a country in Europe where fourth year maritime students didn't know of the word API. Um, I mean that that is really concerning if the new generation doesn't know this new type of data sharing because. What is powerful about that type of data sharing is that the data stays with the data owner 
um, and they can decide who can um, uh, who can access that data or not. And mm. um, from a Rotterdam perspective and a digital infrastructure perspective, um, we are now building an API marketplace that will allow companies to come there with their suppliers or with their uh, customers and jointly do a data sharing pro uh, project. So to make it much more accessible and easy to go and copy um, mm. good stuff. Okay. What other barriers do you think there are to uptake? You know, if you could sort of characterize it as the, you know, the key concerns that you have, uh, you know, looking at what the industry is doing and, you know, maybe give us an idea of what it is you think needs to be the priority in terms of change. Yeah, I think that the, the priority of, uh, of change needs to be that we need to um, have people that start doing things instead of waiting mm. um, because if you do and you step into the arena you learn um, if you sort of stand outside and you look at whatever best practices and you look at it academically or from a slide pack perspective you're never going to learn um, you need to be in the arena to learn so that means find one or two other parties um, form a group together and start learning um, my tip to those people would be um, immediately look to startups and scale-ups um, and tech solutions because they often know what your problem is and they can help you leapfrog. Um, so yeah, concrete action is, is basically the answer. Okay, so concrete action is required. But let's park the digital conversation for a moment and switch to finance because Many of you will be aware of the Poseidon principles and their bid to impose financial transparency on the emissions associated with shipping's bank debt. What we often miss in that conversation is the action that necessarily follows from that process. Capital is increasingly going to be restricted to those who are not making sufficient progress on decarbonizing their fleets, and they're going to find themselves in increasingly difficult positions. Paul Taylor is the Global Head of Shipping and Offshore Society General and the Vice Chair of the Poseidon Principles. So I'm going to bring him in here. Before I do, though, um, a quick apology, because there is a bit more background noise on some of the recordings that follow. It's not ideal. What can I say? Athens is not a quiet city. Anyway, Paul is convinced that actually change is happening because lending behaviour is changing and capital is going to become more restricted as a result. Um, let's just go back. The Poseidon Principles was set up in 2019 as a measurement and a reporting initiative and to encourage transparency and accountability. And that still is today its primary goal. But the, the reality is in, in, in introducing a more ambitious trajectory to um, align with the IMO, this is what we've done, we, we therefore move towards formal target setting. And it's an ambition to to actually decarbonise the industry, and what that's going to lead to, as as shipping banks uh, try to align with wider commitments that their banks have made towards 1.5 or, or thereabouts in 2050, we've got to look at our business models on how we achieve that. And so, whilst we're talking about accountability and transparency, absolutely, absolutely rightly. We now have to look at target setting. And through target setting, you have to achieve, sorry, you have to address how you're going to achieve those targets. 
and let's be totally frank, lending behavior has to change. That is the only way we will be able to align with these new trajectories, these, these new targets. Um, and that's going to directly lead to banks prioritizing capital, finite capital, for those projects which are aligned with the energy transition. And that means vessels which are low or zero carbon, and hopefully not just the vessels being low or zero carbon, but the actual run on the fuels that they're designed to run on. And it's going to lead to capital being prioritized for those clients who have committed to being ambitious towards the energy transition. Because if we don't show our alignment to our to these new targets, the capital which our banks allocate to our business of shipping finance, which is fi which is finite, mm. will be used elsewhere. So we have no choice other than to change lending behaviour with immediate effect. And yet, you know, what we're hearing through the conversations here at the Global Maritime Forum and you know, in progress reports published yesterday through UMass and the various Get to Zero Coalition studies, we don't have enough ships, we don't have enough fuel coming through. Are there enough genuinely uh, green projects for you to lend to? And is there a danger that that gap in terms of the gap between ambition and, and action results in actually the industry losing access to capital? There is going to be some reduction, I think, in shipping finance over the next few years as banks address how they're going to align themselves, that's for sure. But there are plenty of opportunities. There are opportunities to finance the vessels which will one day run on the, the green fuels. Mm. So that the results within the Poseidon principles might not actually reflect that initially. So we may get more volatile results, worse results as banks mm. in terms of our emissions intensity in the early years. But once the new fuels come on stream, that will that will change and hopefully the results will get much better. But in the meantime, lending will still will still take place. I think there's a lot of retrofit opportunities. And banks want to make these the, this lending to encourage retrofitting, whether that's through sale and lease back, through funds, through pure loans, I'm sure all three. So there's going to be plenty of financing going forward, albeit a reduction, um, but banks will be looking to prioritise capital for the retrofitting, um, for the clients who are committed, and for the new investments, and there are plenty of them. I mean, you speak you know, on behalf of Poseidon Principles, but also as a bank that is signed up to multiple 1.5 aligned commitments. Not all banks are. And even within the Poseidon principles, you know, there is a, a, a division, I guess, in terms of the level of ambition. It's, it's seen as a singular group, but, you know, there are different sizes of banks with different portfolios and there are going to be differences of opinions. And even outside of the Poseidon principles, you then have the rest of shipping finance. And of course, Poseidon principles doesn't really cover Chinese leasing and uh, a lot of the Asian market. Do, do you think we're in danger of, of entering a world where we have a tiered financial system for shipping? Well, the Poseidon Principles has 34 banks and they're all committed to aligning with the IMO. You know, you're quite right that there are some banks who 
need, we want to be 1.5 aligned and there's some, some other banks aren't at the moment um, and whilst other, some others are, are, are looking at where they want to be. So this is a reason why at the moment the Poseidon principles um, are not expressly 1.5 degree aligned we have to accept that it is a complicated process and uh, getting 34 banks on the same page will take time probably longer than we anticipated um, so does that mean mean it's a two-tiered um, banking system or process I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I mean some will be 1.5 some may never be 1.5 um, and that is something we, we, may, we may have to accept now, as I mentioned at the outset, these conversations and the ones last week were all recorded on the sidelines of the Global Maritime Forum, which offers an interesting space in the industry to have these discussions. The chats that I've been having for several years now with GMF's managing director, Johanna Christensen, is whether real progress is really being made as a result. Those inside the GMF discussions generally adhere to the view that the industry's narrative has changed and a new phase of energy transition is in sight. But I wonder whether there is yet sufficient detail to support the claims that progress has actually been made. Whether or not we have made progress depends on how we define progress, right? Okay. And I think we probably have different or somewhat, yeah, we have slightly different views of what, what constitutes progress in many ways. And for me, the change in the quality of the conversation, in the granularity of the conversation, it constitutes progress because it's the step the next step that we need to take in order to move along it's progress happens of course in one sort of way of looking is that it happens in leaps and bounds another view of it is that it happens in these teeny tiny incremental steps that amount to accumulate to leaps and bounds if that makes sense and what we're observing is all those little shifts, all those little steps that over time will accumulate to the momentous change that we need. Mm. Is it going fast enough? No. Of course we agree on that. There's no doubt it's not going fast enough. And it's particularly not going fast enough in light of the crisis that we face from an environmental point of view. And I don't think we as anyone in, uh, in the room today would disagree with that. Um, I think I empathize with the fact that even in the face of the of a crisis of an emergency faced with commercial constraints i think many struggle to figure out what what exactly to do the imo has made that so much easier i think i don't think the outcome of the imo decision or the uh, the imo decision is well enough understood yet and i think even in the discussions that we've had here over the past few days those, the understanding of the implications of these decisions are only beginning to sort of fully trickle, trickle into the conversations. You're, you're being diplomatic uh, about your membership and you can't say such things, but I can because I have had conversations with people inside the GMF. And I think it's fair to say that while there is a lot of understanding of the detailed nuance of their specific aspects, there is still a worrying lack of understanding of what was agreed at the IMO in mm, terms of mm. people actually not being able to understand the numbers. Mm, and mm. I don't think the... And the consequences, And right? the consequences. And yeah. the industry hasn't yeah, yet totally digested yeah. the consequences of what has been agreed. Yeah. I, you know, I, I put the question to people yesterday that, uh, you know, 
the majority of people didn't expect the IMO to agree uh, an agreement to the level that it did. And at some point, I would say they've been caught off guard because mm. the IMO was a useful scapegoat in many respects. Mm. The, you know, the ability to say, well, we said that the regulators should have moved faster and harder uh, and they haven't is no longer there because actually it's not 1.5 a line, but it's not far off. And I think it's really caught some people off guard. It, take, it takes time to revise your talking points in the face of that, <laughs> if we're being honest, right? And it doesn't <laughs> feel like there it takes has time been to revise your, your thinking, it takes time to revise your strategies, etc. Yeah. And I think the, where we differ is really about what's, what's the pace that we can expect. Mm. And what, you know, I think the last time we spoke, when we were in New York, um, we talked about the fact that, you know, what does it take drive change what is it that we actually do right this this collaborative change what is that and how what's the the sort of the the difficulty of the doing of it right and one of the things that i think we learn is that it requires a tremendous amount of patience and i think we're in a phase right now where we need to have a little bit of patience a little bit of understanding um help share knowledge make sure that those who do have really done their work who really analyze who've come to understand and those who have not yet um, that they can learn from one another that's one of the purposes of a forum like this is that those who have knowledge in one area and one arena can share it with those who have knowledge in another arena mm. and that they collectively become smarter and better informed and have a more clear-eyed view of the future and their role in determining outcomes in the future right so and that's i think that is happening here it takes time though and it's sometimes it's you know it moves a few steps forward and then a step back and oh that's not great but that's you know it will i trust that it will move forward again in case there's any cynics out there ready to dismiss johanna's optimism as a case of well she would say that wouldn't she i'm going to step in here and declare myself an avid supporter of the gmf and its goals it is, of course, a deeply imperfect platform, discussing somewhat nebulous goals amid skewed demographics with limited accountability. But it is nonetheless a force for good, and the programmes it has spawned have tangibly made a difference to the way in which many are now operating. I'm sure some of you are going to disagree with me on that one, but there you have it. Steen Lund, the chief executive of Rightship, is another GMF believer who agrees that progress is being made, but he says the focus is understandably on decarbonisation challenges on the technical side, and there is still a lot of work to do to create a safe working environment for the people working in shipping. Because I think the greater environment uh, in terms of the physically physical handling of the fuels and what it takes to set up the right safety structures belongs together with the de decarbonisation conversation, and, and obviously a major part of that is the whole structure of educating everyone across the supply chain, whether it's the, the future bunker supplier or, or it's the individual on, on board the vessel receiving the, the, the bunkers or the fuel, as it were, um, or it's the, the testers of that. that is, that's a massive environment that, that requires uh, its rigor. Um, but if we focus on, on where, again, we can go in and make a difference, um, I'm excited. I, I walk away really excited based on some of the conversations we've had here about what technology can do for us to help identify weaknesses uh, in the people-related supply chain and help strengthen that. Let me give a, an example or two. I think it's, it's really encouraging to 
appreciate that there are solutions in place that are used primarily in land-based industries that can help us uh, build safety parameters, perimeters sorry, uh, into the supply chain on board a ship. Think of the fact that we today as an industry, we lose a seafarer about once a month because that seafarer goes into an enclosed space that's unsafe. All it takes is some level of a wearable that tells that seafarer where he is and if he goes into a, an unsafe zone that gives him a, a warning signal. At the same time that can be via vibration uh, on, on his wrist, it can be via a voice uh, that, that speaks out of a device he's wearing, can be in many many different ways and at the same time that safety zone can be created on the bridge and communicated so that essentially um, the command knows where all the people on board the, the vessel uh, they, they are at a given point in time and I'm, I'm very certain that if we are bold in implementing those type of very used technologies today we can help de-risk uh, the seafarer. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about existing safety concerns on existing technology on existing ships and we are still failing. The question of ammonia, very toxic, very nasty, one yep. accident is potentially going to derail the entire fuel stream, potentially. You know, how confident are you that, you know, given the current failings, we're going to get it right for the next bit? I'm confident if we're talking specifically about safety related to future fuels that, that are high risk in our perception today, uh, then I think history has the answer to what future uh, steps need to be taken. We've changed fuel uh, a number of times in this industry, and every time we have looked at the next fuel, we've perceived it as being a higher risk fuel than the one we have handled so far. Now that might seem naive as, as a quick answer, but we know that the rigor we, we surround ourselves with when we take these steps will not be compromised. So I'm very confident that, that if you aggregate all the knowledge bases we have across the industry, they'll, they'll, we, we will all make absolutely certain that we don't introduce for instance, ammonia into a physical environment where the people that need to handle it are not fully trained, where all the safety barriers have not been fully tested and, and where, again, all the additional uh, safeguards uh, that, for instance, technology can bring with us are, are not fully deployed. So I'm, I'm certain that we won't see that we take undue risks and, and hence risk neither the people on board nor the environment nor the assets themselves. Okay, the final voice from around the GMF I wanted to bring you this week is an old friend of the podcast, Rajesh Uni from Synergy Maritime. Again, he is a GMF believer and an optimist, but he's been talking for a long time now about the industry's lack of pace when it comes to developing the right skills in the right people. Given that we have such a large scale in terms of number of people, and we also about diversity in the, in the kind of leadership profile that you'll see in the organization. Obviously, with such large groups, you can't get to the nitty-gritty and talk in detail. So there has to be, the starting point has to be the understanding that collectively we want to get there and the belief that that's the right thing to do for the planet and for the sustainability of shipping in itself and to attract the next generation. So I think that's the first. But if you look at the past GMFs also, I do agree that there's a lot of conversation and if we could do more action, but then you also should look at what have we bought out of some of these conversations in the past. Mm. Like they launched the All Aboard Alliance uh, pilot, right? It, it happened 18 months ago. But so we were one of those who have, you know, put that into place. Now you can say that did we have six female seafarers even before? Yes, we did. 
but now what we have done is we have created awareness amongst people that this is possible and there are few things that we need to collectively to do to make this sustainable so i think yes we were having high level conversations during the summit but there are also detailed conversations that follow through in the days to come and hopefully every year we have tried to bring out something that is actionable mm. and for others to then emulate that and take action so i genuinely think that these conversations are helpful it also brings a different perspective now i was in the operational efficiency discussion so you know we got some charters telling what are their side of things or how they are looking at it so then you get a different perspective and understand okay it's not about just your ship going from point a to point b but there are also other players that own the terminals and that they own the cargo that receives and supplies and how do they think and what is incentivizing them to create operational efficiency so i think when you have those perspectives then when you go back and try to solve the problem that you're dealing with you get you know, you know a, a different angle to this and so then hopefully you are able to bring solutions that are equitable yeah. to many other people so I, i genuinely think that yes there is action people are talking about collaboration now but it's not that it has not happened in the past and it also depends on every individual to then take like my son goes to a good school and i told him he goes to one of the good engineering schools in the us but getting into the school is one thing but what do you make out of that is up to you entirely so it also depends on how much you want to invest in time and energy to take something out of that conversation and create some action points back in your organization that's how i'm i'm thinking final point i want to ask you about is we we've had a lot over the last couple of days about talent getting the right talent uh you know diversity certainly but skills as well do you think that that is now a conversation that is is again you know being progressed into action or are we storing up a real skill shortage in this industry it doesn't feel like we're quite moving ahead quickly enough on some of these things no so i think that you know i've been talking about this that mm. people have to be at the center of any transition mm. uh, and and uh, and there are people again who are doing something about it so we are in in singapore we have created a advisory panel already and we are coming out with the final report where we're looking at the skill sets that you need to be a future seafarer mm. skill sets that you need to transition from skill uh, being a seafarer to a, uh, somebody ashore and then also a skill set that you can use to diversify your potential opportunities when you move away from a seafaring career to ashore so this has happened and we are coming out with a report very soon so it's not something that you know people are only talking about now it's up to us to say okay that report seems useful and how do i drive change in the respective you know uh, organizations within our own countries where we are feeding seafarers and make the change happen in terms of a curriculum what are the skill sets that you need to go from a cadet today to become a master or from a junior engineer to become a chief engineer but i i just feel that building capability is going to be the most important thing in our journey for the next 5 10 years to make sure that this transition is successful okay and there we will leave it for another week I hope you got something out of those conversations. No doubt they are themes that we will be picking up on more in coming episodes. If there are topics you desperately want covered in the podcast, please do get in touch. You can find me on LinkedIn, occasionally on X via at Lloyd's List Ed, but the quickest route is via richard.mead, that's M E A D E, at lloydslistintelligence.com. Uh, bear in mind that my email has now changed so anybody still using my @informa.com address please switch to @loyslistintelligence.com 
My thanks to all the speakers for this week uh, and to the GMF for allowing me to stalk the delegates with a microphone. And of course, thank you for listening. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you.